Hey, welcome here. We've got an exciting message here for you this morning that talks about the 12 disciples being sent out. And, and there's some really neat things in there for us to learn and to grow from and to even emulate. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 9. In the beginning of your Bibles, there's a table of contents. People worked hard to put it there. Please don't be ashamed to use it. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 9. And I'm going to read verses uh, 1 and 2 for today. Here we go. One day, Jesus called his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, that we would have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So birds, when they are first born, can't fly. Now, everybody knows that. That's not a surprise to anybody. But just like human beings, their muscles need to develop. They need to grow. And so initially, the parents do everything for these baby birds. They take care of all of their needs. But the parent birds force their babies to learn about flying by remaining a short distance from the nest and, and forcing the birds to kind of come their way. Young birds got to come out of the nest to get their food. Sometimes this means that a few falls to the ground are taking place. Sometimes it means that they have a long trip back to safety of the nest. But this trial and error for these little birds eventually teach them about the mechanics of flight. And slowly, the parent birds encourage their fledglings to spend more and more time away from the nest until they become more independent. And so there is this growth process where they're born and, and, and so the parent birds are taking care of everything that they need and then this slow separating leading to more independence of this baby bird. Well, in the beginning of Luke chapter 9, we observe Jesus continuing the training of his disciples by giving them their first lesson on learning how to fly. And so Jesus sends his followers out on a mission to the area towns and he gave them a specific assignment and instructions. And this mission is to accomplish two purposes. Now, first, it's uh, to expand the proclamations of the gospel, to spread the good news. That, that's one of the primary things. But in addition to that, it was a step in training of those who would carry on the work of Jesus after Jesus leaves and goes to heaven. Because you have to remember that Jesus is preparing specifically these 12 for when he's gone to carry on the mission. So internships are required in many jobs. Educators have learned that uh, not everything can be taught in the classroom. So at some point, we have to practically do the things that we've been learning in the classroom. And so today, we see Jesus teaching the disciples how to fly, you could say. So what's the assignment? Well, uh, Jesus gave the disciples power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. And he says all demons and all diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to go heal the sick. Now, their job was to go to the neighboring communities and basically do what they had seen Jesus do. Preach, heal, cast out demons. They were to put into practice what they have observed and what they have been taught. And so I actually believe that the work of the disciples was unique. And this 
they were they had this unique power to heal and cast out demons because of their role in establishing the church. They were given ex- extraordinary signs to validate their proclamation. And I believe that God still does miracles. But the disciples' situation was a little unique. In Luke chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, it says, He told them, Take nothing with you for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever uh, house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. Now, the idea seems to be one of simplicity. Um, the men were not to take time to pack and plan for their trip, which really... It's not uncommon for men anyway, right? We'll take a duffel bag and we'll go somewhere. Um, but they were supposed, wherever it is that they were supposed to go, none of these things were to come with them. They were not supposed to worry about provisions, but they were supposed to trust God for provision. And they were not supposed to, and they were not supposed to be content in whatever home, uh, sorry, they were supposed to be content in whatever home gave them shelter. And then it talks about this idea of them you know, realistically, like traveling light, which is a bit of an understatement, right? And by the way, this is a really important point here. Before we start to conclude that anyone going out on any kind of mission work should take nothing with them, um, later on in the mission, Jesus commands his followers to take a purse, like, a you know, take some money with them. So the instructions in Luke were not literally meant for all who would preach the good news for every generation to come. Um, And so the reason that Jesus ordered them to travel light was to avoid looking like other false missionaries in ancient times um, who made personal profit from their preaching. So essentially, when the disciples go out, rather than looking like all of the other uh, magical uh, messiahs, you could say, or prophets, they were to be different. And they were to take no money in return for their teaching, for the good news that they were offering. He also told them that when they found themselves in a town that didn't welcome them, that they were to kick the dust off their feet. Now, this was something uh, that a good Jew would do when they left an alien land, uh, a Gentile land, an unclean land. They would shake the dust from their feet and their clothing to separate themselves from the defilement of ungodliness. And not only shake themselves off from the defilement of that, but that they weren't going to bring any of that defiled dust, ground, dirt into what was considered holy, which would have been the promised land, right? Like Jerusalem. So when the disciples did this, they would be be declaring that the Jewish communities in which they spoke were pagan-like in their unbelief. That's a massive statement. Now, I think there's something that we're supposed to learn from this. Ministry is to be evangelistic, and practical. And this is what we're to learn in, in Jesus sending out these, the disciples. The disciples were to preach the gospel and extend practical aid. And the love of God must not simply just be proclaimed, it must be practiced. The two got to go together. And if we do, uh, if all we do is extend social assistance to people, well, they may feel better but they'll still be eternally lost. And if all we do is preach and we do nothing to alleviate the suffering and the distress of people, well, then we're gonna, they're going to see us as lacking compassion. So we have to talk, but we also have to do the walk, right? Like the two go good, they go together. Another thing that I see here is that we're to depend on God to provide for us. As individual um, and as churches, we spend so much time trying to eliminate risk. 
and it's and it's a detriment to us in terms of the extent that we go to eliminate risk because uh, we never learn the exhilaration of living by faith. Jesus wants us to know that we can depend on him to meet our needs. He wants us to learn to be satisfied and to be content with his provision in our lives. And so every time we try to mitigate risk, we lose the opportunity to live by faith. Now, admittedly, you know, we are to take stock of things. We are to count costs for things, all that kind of stuff. But removing all risk also removes opportunities to live by faith. Another thing is that we shouldn't be, keep wasting our time where we're not wanted. Jesus didn't tell the disciples to work harder in places that resisted their ministry. He told them to move on. Now, this doesn't mean that we give up on people. That's not the language here. What it does mean is that at that current time when they were in that town, the people weren't receptive to the gospel, and so they were supposed to just, okay, well, fine. You don't want it? We'll leave. It doesn't mean that they don't eventually come back. It doesn't mean that, that we just wash our hands of people and, and we're done. It just means that we come back perhaps at a, uh, at a later time. We can return later when the hearts of the people are more receptive or God might use someone else to do the ministry. So these are key things that we learn here. But we also see the result of their ministry as they go. Uh, after these particular instructions, we read in Luke chapter 9, verse 6 to 9, So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, he was confused. Because some were saying that John had been risen, raised from the dead. Others said that Elijah had appeared. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Now, one of the things we see here is that the disciples did exactly what they were told. As a result of the word and the work of Jesus it spread even to Herod. Now, there were several men called Herod in the Bible. And, and so we got to make sure that we're not confusing which Herod this is. The Herod at the time of Jesus' birth, um, who actually died while Mary and Joseph and Jesus were in Egypt, was known as Herod the Great. He was the one who was, he was called Herod the Great because of, um, of, of all the structures that he would build and, and, and the addition that he added on to the temple. Uh, he, was, he was the father of this particular Herod that we're talking about now, who is known as Herod Antipas, and the same man who examined Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. The other biblical Herod is the nephew of Antipas, who ruled during the time of Paul, and he was Herod Agrippa. So you had Herod the Great, you had Herod Antipas, and you had Herod Agrippa. And we're talking about Herod Antipas right now. So Herod Antipas had surely heard about Jesus before this time, but all of a sudden his ministry was flourishing in a new way, and Herod wondered who this guy was. And so the people of God live in the power of God's spirit will always draw others towards Christ. The people of God who live in God's spirit, right, connected to him, abide in him, I'll abide in you, this is the language of Jesus. We're a contagious community when we do this and people are drawn to who Jesus is so is isn't it interesting uh, what people even said about Jesus at this point 
Some thought he was John the Baptist, whom Herod and Antipas had executed, thinking that he had come back to life. And Herod knew that he had executed an innocent man and it haunted him. So some people would suggest that perhaps he was thinking this way. Still others thought that Jesus was this re reincarnated Elijah. And it's interesting that there is no indication that anyone considered the fact that Jesus might actually be the son of God, that he was the promised one from God. Today, people tend to view Jesus as a motivational speaker or an insightful leader, a teacher, a prophet of old, um, or a worthy example to follow. Even some in the church see Jesus more as a life coach than the Lord of life. People celebrate his teachings on love, but they reject his teachings on moral issues in life. They call him great teacher, but then they completely dismiss his command to repent. They celebrate the way he cared for hurting people, but refuse to accept his statements about accountability and judgment and, well, even hell. And it, and it leads to the conclusion that, that when we're wrong about Jesus, like, biblically speaking, when we're wrong about Jesus, we're wrong about everything else. Because it all points to him and it points from him. And so the question that Herod Antipas is asking, like, who is this man, is vitally important. Is Jesus just a religious leader or is he God? Or who, who became man to bring salvation to all of humankind for those who would accept him? I encourage you to ask the same question as Herod did. Who is this man? Like, read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and listen to what Jesus said. Look at what he does. Instead of reading how contemporary authors explain away scripture, listen to the testimony of those who traveled alongside Jesus. And, and when you see their testimonies, when you see their eyewitness accounts, not 100% linking up, that's evidence actually that they're eyewitness accounts. Because even in the common court of law today, if an eyewitness account is identical to someone else's, it becomes suspicious because it looks like a made-up story then. But when there's slight deviations in there, little nuances, it's an indication that it's actual fact. And if Jesus is who he says he is, the Lord over all creation, then follow him. Do everything he says. And if he's not who he said he is, well, then head in a different direction. But I think what you'll find is that he's exactly who he says he is. So what should we learn? Well, let me draw five principles that we can take away from this text. Because we look at this text and, and, and we look at it and, and say, okay, so Jesus sends out the disciples. What, what has that got to do with, with me? Uh, well, we grow in grace and truth, right? Like we all need training. This is one of the first things that we notice in the text. Every single person... Uh, who's a follower of Jesus, needs training. We all grow in grace and truth. And it's not an excuse for laziness or inaction. It's just a fact of life. And there, and there are three practical implications here. First, we should look for opportunities that will stretch us and help us grow. I, I think we have in our North American church um, an obsession with comfort. I'm not comfortable so I don't want to do this thing. I don't want to follow this command. I don't want to hear what this person says because all of these things make me uncomfortable. And if I'm uncomfortable, uh, then this isn't good because that's not a good emotion for me. So then I want that stuff gone, right? 
Like that's typically what happens. And so then we are, we have this obsession with comfort. But discomfort actually helps us grow. We need to experiment and perhaps by going on a short-term mission trip or, you know, like, or, or volunteering in a nursing home or a food pantry, like you might even want to help with kids ministry. Who knows? But the point is, do something. Do something so that you can learn to grow and stretch in your service to the Lord. The other thing is this, as it relates to this particular piece, and that is that, that there are many who, who have gone through life and, and haven't served. And I just want to let you know that that actually spiritually stunts growth. Uh, I want you to think of it from this perspective, that if you're not being stretched, there's no opportunity to grow. And so maybe you don't know where to plug in in a ministry. My encouragement to you would be contact your church. Contact, like if you're from Pathway here, contact us. We've got places that you can serve. And if it's an area that, that you're not familiar with, or maybe you don't even know where to begin, my recommendation is pick something, start. If it's not your giftedness, if it's not your passions, if, you, if you're not growing into it, then choose something else. But start with something. Don't start by trying to figure out what the thing is. Get your feet wet. And in serving, learn where the Lord wants you serving. Second, we should not get discouraged. We need to give ourselves time to learn and to grow. Every skill has got to get developed so give yourself some time and some grace in it. Look, none of us who have ever been doing anything in life, like if you think about your job, when you first start your job, you're insecure. You don't totally know how everything works. But then you grow in it and you grow in your confidence and you grow in your understanding of your role and then you don't need as much supervision, all these kinds of things. The same is true when it comes to serving the Lord and growing in the Lord. So give yourself some time and, and some grace. And then thirdly, uh, we gotta be patient with others. So we give ourselves time and grace, but we gotta give others time and grace as well. If, if everyone needs to grow, then we need to make sure that we give other people time to grow as well. Now, the second thing that we learn here is that Jesus calls us to be balanced in our ministry. A practical ministry that doesn't point to Jesus is like putting a bandage on a broken leg. You may have treated the surface injury, but you haven't addressed the real problem. On the other hand, you can also be so focused on communicating the urgency of the gospel that you ignore the need that people have that's right in front of you. We can talk all day about the different Greek forms of the word love, but if we never actually show that love, we become as annoying as a telemarketer who calls at supper. We've got to strive for balance by proclaiming and demonstrating the love of Jesus. Jesus maintained this balance and we got to follow his example. Jesus proclaimed the good news and he did acts of compassion. The good news is the good news. That is the gospel. But the gospel then uh, moves us to works of service and that's where the compassion piece comes in. So the works of service is not the gospel. It is the result of people who are changed by the gospel. And so this is what we do. Third, we've got to learn to trust the Lord rather than ourselves. Uh, this is a lesson that we've got to apply every day of our lives. It may be in the classroom, in the fields, uh, in our family life, in our jobs, friendships, our budgets, whatever it is. We need to work hard to trust the Lord. 
We are to trust him to accomplish the work he needs to accomplish in us. And so we got to trust him uh, to lead us rightly, to provide what is best for us. To, we got to resist the urge to put our confidence in programs, to put our confidence in methods, and even in our own ability. This is not where the confidence is to be placed. The confidence is ultimately to be placed in Jesus. And in confidence in Jesus, we then know that he'll equip us for works of service. So that stuff is important, but it's all connected back to Jesus. If we just place confidence in our abilities, in our programs, in our strategies, then what do we need Jesus for? So we've got to make sure that we work hard to put our confidence and our trust in him and, and go to him for our strategies and purposes. We are to trust him. Even those who are the most creative and talented cannot accomplish what he can accomplish in an instant through his spirit. Fourthly, when we do our work correctly, we will point others to Jesus. That's important. When we do our work correctly, we will point others to Jesus. Now, this is what happened with Herod, right? What is going on here? The disciples are doing this thing. Herod is looking at Jesus saying, who is this guy? We certainly want people to have better marriages. We want more financial security for people. We want more enjoyable life. Uh, but our goal is bigger than this. Our goal is not just to simply help people make a better life here on earth, though that could be part of it, but it's not really actually the goal. The goal is to help people get into the kingdom of God and have eternity with him. Like suppose you're a salesman. And let's say some people really liked you and they look forward to when you're stopping by to talk with them. And you always receive warm handshakes, you know, you, you get great smiles from people. Would that make you a good salesman? No, that would just make you likable. You're a good salesman if people purchase your product. That's what actually makes you a good salesman. You're taking care of, of making sure that you've got this product that's going to meet the needs of people. You're connecting them to the product and then they buy it. That's what makes you a good salesman, not just whether or not you're likable. We would be an absolute failure in the job if we wouldn't be able to get people to buy our product. And so in the same way, look, people can hold us in high esteem. They can think well of us. And realistically, I mean, a lot of us, some of the reasons we don't share the gospel is because we don't want people to think badly of us. So that's kind of that risk thing again, right? But people can hold us in high esteem. We can be popular with everyone around us. But if our lives are not leading people to Jesus, I just have to say it, we failed. We failed. We are given the purpose as believers to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. This is what we do. This is who we are. We proclaim the good news of Jesus. We're making disciples. And if this is not what's being produced in our lives. You need to know that we're moving towards failure in this. And then finally, people are responsible for their own response to the Lord. So let's be clear about this. Our lives should lead people towards the Lord, but those people are still responsible for their response to the Lord. You catch that? That's, that's important. So I suspect on Judgment Day that there will be a large group of people who will argue that they are not responsible for the choices in their lives. They will blame the media, blame their circumstances, blame the programs at their church. They're going to blame everybody else. And people will blame their parents, their government, um, or the opportunity that got away from them. 
When disciples were told to shake the dust from their feet, it is a reminder that whether you accept your responsibility or not, God holds you personally responsible for how you respond to his message of grace, forgiveness, and new life. You're making decisions about your spiritual life and your eternal future, whether you admit it or not. And if you attend church, but virtually ignoring God in every other area of life, God's not fooled by this. You're going to fool everybody else, but God's not fooled by this. He knows that you've chosen not to follow him. If others call you spiritual, but in your private life you are rebelling against the Lord, he knows the truth. We are alone. We alone are responsible for choosing who and what will have control over our lives. As a matter of fact, as it relates to following after what God tells us to do, how he tells us to live, how he tells us to believe, how he tells us to function, James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25 says this, Do not merely listen to the word so as to deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and is immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they are blessed in what they do. And so I encourage you today to lay aside all the excuses. Instead of blaming your schedule, your job, your family, your government, your, your history, your church, your circumstances, for why you're not following the Lord, take responsibility for your own life. Take responsibility for the consequences in your life. Jesus calls you to follow him, and you are the only one who can decide whether or not you are going to follow him or you're going to ignore his commands. And he says, like, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So set down the excuses and follow the only one who can teach you to soar. He can teach you to fly. The disciples must have been apprehensive when they left the comfort of their nest. But they took the first step. They did what the Lord told them to do. And as a result, God used them in astounding ways. Now we are here today because they followed the instructions and they were faithful. That's why we're here today. The message went out because Jesus raised up men to go do this work and the gospel spread. God can use us as well. We can learn to soar in the power of God's spirit like the disciples and it all starts when we dare to take the first step and spread our wings of faith. So this is what we learn here. Like the disciples, we can be obedient. Like the disciples, Jesus wants to equip us for works of ministry. Like the disciples, we are to spread the gospel message and then back it up with works of mercy. And we're to obey all that Jesus commanded. This is what we get here. And when that happens, we find that people begin to ask questions about who Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that would be obedient, that we would search your word to find out what it is that you call us into. And Lord, that we would uh, take steps of faith to walk into areas where we're able to serve and learn and grow and be stretched and, and rely on you more. Uh, but Lord God, that we would be a people who would press into you and, and be changed by you, Lord, that we would no longer 
longer be obsessed with comfort, but rather, Lord, we would be obsessed uh, with what you call us into and spreading your word. In your name I pray. Amen.